Y'all, you are lucky, lucky people today. Some of you already know that. But some of you are like, wait, what's the catch? Uh, you're smart. You are smart. Um, today, today you get to hear not one, but two sermons. Uh-huh. Hey. All right. Some of you are going, oh, man. Oh, two sermons. Two. What are you talking about? Um, okay. Well, today, today we're actually going to cover two parts of Titus. So that's why I say two sermons. And don't worry. I promise it'll, it'll really only be like one. Um, but uh, I, I just wanted to tell you that today we're going to cover two segments. And I, the reason, reason is, uh, well, we'll get to the second reason. But one of them is I'm kind of, uh, I'm looking forward to what we're going to start next week. Next week we're going to start a new series. And we're going to start looking at the book of Nehemiah um, with, with this year. Could, could you, Matt? Yeah, we're going to talk about rising up, how we need to rise up and build. And we're going to look at the story of Nehemiah. So we're going to actually be jumping backwards. We're going to go back to the Old Testament. We're going to look at one of those books. Um, and we're going to talk about how the church, the church should be rising up and we should be building something. So that's what we're going to start talking about as we look at the book of Nehemiah. But I know some of you like to read ahead. Some of you like to be prepared for what we're going to talk about here. And some of you are like, okay, Jared, we'll talk about that next week. That's all true. So, but if you want to read ahead, that's where we're going to be starting next week. But today, to get to that, we have to get through two sermons uh, today. So, um, really, the real reason that we're going to do two different parts today, and I know some of you are still thinking, two sermons. So you're talking like you're going to be up here for an hour and a half, two hours. No, no, I won't. Don't worry. We'll, we'll condense a little bit. But um, there's, a, there's somebody who maybe could have done a better job of this than I did. And could you put the picture of that guy up there? Does anybody know who this guy is? I think somebody said it. It is. That's Charles Spurgeon. Does anybody know who Charles... If you know who Charles Spurgeon is, raise your hand. Okay, so some of you know who Charles Spurgeon is. All right. Arguably the greatest preacher ever. Guy is a fantastic... Was a fantastic orator. Um, lived in Great Britain. Preached. Saw, saw thousands and thousands of people come to salvation uh, under his preaching. Guy was an extremely gifted and also spirit-filled preacher of the word. So guy, guy was incredible. And the reason I wanted to show you him is because I want to make clear, I'm not Charles Spurgeon, y'all. <laughs> I, I, I've just had a conversation with somebody this week, and I like to tell people I am exceptionally mediocre at most things, okay? Um, like exceptionally mediocre. And just to be completely honest, I am not a good enough preacher to preach both of these two segments as a standalone sermon. So because I'm not Charles Spurgeon, that's why y'all are getting two, two sermons today instead of one. So that's the real reason. It's because of my own inadequacies. And see, I've got, I talk about my family probably too much. I've got three brothers. Um, and if y'all have ever met my brothers, they are all bearded men. So they look at Charles Spurgeon and they're like, yeah, he's got an awesome beard. And it's true. I mean, I'm a little envious. But I can't grow a beard. And my brothers like to say that's why I'm not a good enough preacher. So maybe it's the beard like the Samson effect or something going on there. But uh, the truth is I'm not a good enough preacher. So we're going to look at two different segments today. But if you think back to the last few weeks and what we've been talking about over the last few weeks, it's how do we, how do we interact with the world? We talked about that a few weeks ago and how we should still be gracious, we should still be kind, we should still cooperate when we're able to cooperate, even with those people around us who don't believe like we believe. Now, we make a stance on truth. 
Okay, so where the Bible speaks, we, we need to be firm. We need to stand on the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word. But where we can cooperate with those around us, we should. We should cooperate. We shouldn't be people who are immediately trying to pick a fight with everybody who thinks just a little bit different than us. Okay, so we need to make it absolutely clear that we believe in the truth of God's word, but we need to cooperate when we can. And we've been talking about how all of that flows, all of that flows from the grace of God that was revealed in Jesus, right? All of that flows, if you remember, it's the epiphany, like God appeared. He just showed up, and that, that word epiphany is like the sunrise, like God just, just happened to show his grace. Now, it was intentional on his part, but it's nothing that we caused, right? It was just God loved us, so he poured his grace on us. And because he showed us so much kindness, because he showed us so much mercy, because he loved us so much, we should operate out of an overflow of his grace. That's, that's how our lives should look. Like, we should love people because we were loved even when we were unlovable. So, of course, we should. And if you remember, that's kind of what we've been talking about. And then last week we talked about, like, this overflow of that. But how do we respond with those people who are hostile towards us? And how do we deal with that? And this week, this week it's going to be similar. But, but the truth is that not everybody in the church always lives like Paul's been writing. Right? Now, some of you are like, wait a minute, that's not right. Well, it is. It's true. Like, we're supposed to live differently. Our lives are supposed to look different. But what happens whenever we allow our selfishness to creep in? What happens when we, as believers, allow our own selfishness to creep in? And we don't live like Paul's been writing about. How do we respond to that? Like, it would be great if all of us were like, okay, we know the grace of God in Jesus. We've all experienced the grace of God in Jesus, and we're living out of an abundance of that. So we just come to the church building, and we all get together, and everybody always agrees, and we're always nice to one another, and it's always rainbows and sunshine. That'd be great, wouldn't it? The problem is, we are broken humans. And oftentimes, our sin creeps in. And we allow our own selfishness, our own greed, our own desires to come in and divide us. So how do, we, how do we respond to that? What do we do with that? Well, I think Paul touches on that. So we're going to talk specifically today about how to respond when Christians, when church members, people who are a part of the body, are not living in unity with the body. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Would you all stand with me? Let's read God's word. Um, for those of you who don't know where we're going to be at, we're going to be in Titus the book of Titus, chapter 3, we're going to begin in verse 8 today, and we're going to read all the way through the end. So we're going to begin in verse 8, where it says, This saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law, because they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a divisive person after a first and second warning. For you know that such a person has gone astray and is sinning. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me in Nicopolis, because I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their journey so that they will lack nothing. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works for pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. All those who are with me send you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with all of you. Thank God for his word, and you may be seated. So, 
Paul begins in verse 8 by saying, this saying is trustworthy. And then he wants, he wants Titus and the church to insist on these things. But what saying is he saying is trustworthy? What saying is he, is he talking about whenever he says this saying is trustworthy? Well, Paul's saying, look back to the things that I just told you about. All of these good things that I just told you about. He's pointing back to the truth that Jesus came, that Jesus saves, that he poured out the Spirit on us, and that this truth in Jesus should change the way you live. Like he's saying, this saying, this saying is something you can count on. That Jesus came to change your life. Jesus came and he poured out the Spirit. So now you can live a life that is different from what it was before. You don't have to be stuck in that anymore. And since it's trustworthy, Paul says to insist on these things as the church. Insist on these things. Literally, this word insist, it means to speak confidently about. So he's saying, don't shy away from this. Be confident in this. Like, be confident in urging people to faith in good works. Because the fact that Jesus came is a trustworthy statement. The fact that he pours out his spirit on you is a trustworthy statement. So be diligent. Insist on people living according to that gospel. So speak confidently about those. And these things need to be insisted on. Like oftentimes we'll be like, yeah, of course we should be doing good works. And then we move on. No, insist on these things. Like these are not things that are like, well, they should be there, but if they're not, it's okay. No, we need to insist on them. Press on these things. Insist on them day after day, week after week. And we do all of this so that those who believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. And he's talking specifically about, about Christians here. He's talking about people who believe, right? Because whenever he's talking about this, he says, those who have believed God. That word believed is, some of you all remember revival meetings here where, where Homer came and he kept on talking about that word pistuo. Like he kept on talking about this word. That, that's this word. Those who believe. This is, this is the idea of faith. Like it's placing everything you have, leaning all of the entirety of the human composition upon Christ in absolute trust. That's what this word indicates. Like, not some half-hearted, like, yeah, I think that's right. No, it's bigger than that. It's leaning everything you have on him. And he says, those who have believed, those who have trusted, those who, have, those who are leaning everything they have, put place all of it on Christ, all of that on God. Those people, that's who he's talking about. He says, they need to be careful to devote themselves to good works. Devote themselves to good works. They need to be ruled over. That's what devote means. It means to be ruled over. So we need to rule over our desires. We need to rule over what we want and say, no, no, we want what Christ wants in our lives. We need to rule over those things. Now, I want to be clear at this point, okay? And I cannot possibly overstress this. These works are not for salvation. These works are not for salvation. These works flow from salvation. That's a very small, I mean, just a very small change, but that is in, exceptionally important. Like, I know I tell you this almost every week, and I'm not going to stop saying it. You cannot be a good enough person to earn salvation. I don't care what you do. It doesn't matter. You cannot be a good enough person for God to be like, oh, since you're so great, like, you did something really nice the other day. You get another star, and once you get enough stars, then you get salvation. No. These works are not for salvation. Salvation was given to you. Like it was free. It was just granted to you. So the good works are not for salvation. These good works that happen in the church and amongst God's people flow from their salvation. 
They come out of the person because they've already experienced that grace and that kindness and that mercy of God in their lives. So that emanates out of them to the people around them. And I cannot possibly overstress that. If you're thinking, you know what, I just need to clean myself up before I come to Jesus, you missed the point. Your good works are not going to be for salvation. Even your best work, the Bible talks about your best works like filthy rags. You cannot do good enough work for salvation. Your work flows from salvation. Okay? Y'all tracking with that? Okay. Um, since I think I'm pretty smart sometimes, I look up a lot of other people um, and hear what they have to say. This one guy named David Guzik, he says it better than I just did. He says, faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is not alone. Okay, y'all, y'all pick up on that? That's a little more eloquent than I can say it. The faith, faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is not alone. And we need to insist on these things. We need to insist on these good works because they're profitable for everyone. Not just for some people, not just for you, but it's profitable for all people. Every man is literally what it says. All people benefit whenever the church rises up and do what we've been called to do and live out the faith that we have in good works. So, that sounds really good. But again, what do we do whenever people don't do that? What do we do whenever Christians don't live that way? Well, I think Paul tells us how to respond to those who are not living according to the gospel message. And the first thing he says is respond by avoiding silly fights. Respond by avoiding silly fights. Verse 9 says, but. But. So he says, look, this is how it's supposed to be. Like, live this way. Let, let that overflow of God's grace just emanate out of your life. But, because Paul's acknowledging, like, it's not always going to work that way. It's not always going to be perfect. It's not always going to be the rainbow and sunshines. And we know that to be true. Like, just, y'all know that. You live in this world, too. You know that that's not always the case. So he says, but, so whenever that's not the case, then what do you do? He says, but avoid. Avoid. It means to physically walk around something. Physically walk around something. Okay, and I love this picture. Because I I know that this makes sense. It's, It's almost like this. He's like, he's saying it like this. He's like, okay. So, you're supposed to live this way, but avoid. So, it's like if Alan Alan was sitting here, and I knew that he had some kind of silly fight that he wanted to pick with me, it would be like this. Alan's going to get up to pick a fight, and I'm going to say, nope, I'm just going (laughs) to. Y'all get that. And I know that you do that. I know you know how to do that because I'm here every week, and after I'm done preaching, I pray, and I I offer an invitation. We sing a song, and as soon as that song is over, usually I say, y'all have a good week, and I walk straight to the back. And some of y'all get back there, and it's just like this. It's like, uh-uh, don't look at him. Don't look at, don't look at the preacher, because then we're going to wind up talking forever, and we just, we got to get home. So I know you know how to avoid. And that's what he says here, though. But that's what he tells them to do. He says, avoid. He says, walk around. So whenever we see the things that we're about to talk about, we, we avoid them. We go around them. Like, there's no point in just walking straight to the preacher afterwards because you know he's going to talk to you forever. There's no sense in doing that. So avoid, avoid these silly fights that we're about to talk about. We go around them. He says, avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law. But my, my first thought was, are all debates or disputes supposed to be avoided? 
are all of them supposed to be avoided? Uh-uh. No. Absolutely not. So how do we know which ones to avoid? How do we know which ones to meet head on? And how do we know which ones to walk around? How, how can we know which one is which? Well, I think the next, the next part actually helps. Um, he says, avoid these, avoid these things because they are unprofitable and worthless. That's what he says. He says, avoid these, these, these foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law because they are unprofitable and worthless. Literally, these words, unprofitable and worthless, they mean useless, fruitless, empty, ineffectual, or unproductive. Essentially, they're things that don't do anybody any good. I think, I think this translation is good. They are unprofitable and worthless. Worthless. That's pretty strong language. They're simply things, the things that we avoid are things that don't do anybody any good. They don't, they're not productive. I mean, whenever it says avoid foolish debates, the, saying foolish debates, actually, that's, that's pretty kind language whenever you actually go back to the Greek. Like, that's, a, that's, that's toning it down a little bit in the translation. Because if I, I'm, let me make this clear, I'm not an expert in Greek. I know just enough to get myself in trouble. But this word, this word foolish, this word, it's probably better translated as stupid. These are stupid debates. They're useless. They're worthless. That's what he's saying. We avoid those things. Don't even go near them. But again, I want, to, I want to stress this also. Not every debate or argument is foolish or stupid or worthless. Not all of them are. Some things are worth fighting for. And Paul demonstrates that through not only this writing, but some of his other writings. He's like running into somebody who's teaching salvation by works. That's a fight worth fighting. That's something that we ought to take on. But whenever we come down to the clear, the clear basic doctrines of the Christian faith, like salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, like the fact that God is one eternally perfect God who perfectly exists in three persons for all eternity, like that's something worth fighting for. We should be fighting for these primary doctrines of the Christian faith. But how do we know when to do this? How do we know when to do this? Well, I'm going to be honest with you. It takes time and it takes wisdom. It does. It, it truly does. And it can be difficult. Because I'll just tell you, I like, I like discussing some of the finer points of soteriology. I think that can be fun. As a matter of fact, I got the privilege. Um, how many of you all know Colby Lewis? I'm going to call him out in the middle of a service even though I don't have permission. You all know Colby? Colby's awesome. I love Colby. Um, but he came to my house the other night and we got to talk about some of the finer points of soteriology. Yeah, that's the doctrine of salvation. We got to talk about some of these deeper things from God's word. We got to discuss some of these things. And I enjoy doing that. The problem comes whenever we start dividing the church over these things. I'm okay with discussing any, just about anything with you. But whenever it starts coming a, becoming a dividing line between the church, like between one person and another, then we have a problem. Because those are, those are foolish debites, divisive, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Foolish disputes. Man, talking is hard. Foolish debates. Those are things that we shouldn't be dividing over. But in the end, whenever it comes down to the basic doctrines, we should hold firm to these. Some of these secondary things might be fun to discuss on occasion, but whenever it comes to a fight, we just need to walk around it. It's not worth your time. It is not worth it. And that's what Jesus did, isn't it? I mean, you think about how the Pharisees tried to trap Jesus. How many times did they come up with something that would be a foolish debate? 
I mean, I think about Matthew 22 um, in verse 15. He's approached with this like, hey, um, should we pay taxes? He's like, whose picture is on that coin? Like, whose face is that? It's Caesar's. Okay, well, give the Caesar what's Caesar's. Get out of my way. I've got stuff to do. Like, Jesus is like, okay, this is a foolish debate. We've got more important things to talk about here. Let's move forward. So, when it mattered, Jesus found a way to get around the silly problems instead focusing on the more important matters. So the point isn't to run and hide as if we're scared from an, of an argument. The point is to use wisdom and know when we should pick a fight, when we should step into the fight, and when we should just avoid it completely. So we respond first by avoiding the silly fights. And the second way we respond is by rejecting repeat offenders. Verse 10 says, reject a divisive person after a first and second warning. And this isn't the first time this comes up in Scripture. This isn't the first time something like this is said, right? Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 15, it says, as Jesus is teaching, it says, If your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. In other words, go to him. Try to restore your brother. Talk to him about the problem. Talk to him about the sin. But notice at the end of this, after repeated warnings, after repeated visits, after going and trying to win back the brother, at the very end he says, he says, let him be like a Gentile and tax collector to you whenever he's continually divisive. See, uh, as I started thinking about this, this whole, like, when do, we, when do we actually avoid a silly fight and when do we say that this is an offender that we need to rebuke? Like, I, start, I started thinking about this and how do we know? And it reminded me of this, this place in the Old Testament in Proverbs, um, in Proverbs 26, 4 and 5, where you kind of get this, this funny idea. And it says this. It says, don't answer a fool according to his foolishness or you'll be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his foolishness, or he'll become wise in his own eyes. And I read that, and I just go, what? What are you supposed to do with that? Like, it says, don't answer the fool. Then it says, answer the fool. And, like, what are you supposed to do with that? Are you supposed to answer the guy or not? And I'm not, I've told you, I'm not real smart, so this is hard. Like, what am I supposed to do here? Okay, first we respond. We we. We don't respond by avoiding foolishness. Then we do answer a fool. We reject a divisive person. So it seems contradictory, but let me, let me explain my understanding of this, okay? It takes wisdom to know which is which. The first offender, the one that you avoid, is something that, will, that it's someone or something that is not necessarily contrary to the gospel message that we've heard. It's something that may be like a secondary doctrine that's not essential to the unity of the church, Whereas the second one, the second, the one that we, we reject after repeat, repeated warnings, that person, that's something that is dividing the church. It's, he's clearly called a divisive person. Like, that's the person that we need to wor- watch out for. That's when we need to go and we need to correct our brothers and sisters. And I think that's what Paul's talking about whenever he writes this here in Titus. Notice that the divisive person, he says, has gone astray and is sinning. It's not some minor matter of, of well, I mean, which, which came first, like regeneration or justification? Like, like which one, and some of you are like, what in the world does that have to do with anything? Uh, I mean, which one's first? Okay, we could debate that all day long, but is it really going to see anybody come to salvation? Uh, maybe, but I doubt it. 
So we need to know what is the primary and what is the secondary. And just so you all, in case you're wondering, like, how do, what, what does Christian fellowship say the primary doctrines are? We have a website, and if you go there, we have a statement of faith on that website. You are welcome to read that, and those are things that we are saying are primary to the Christian faith. They're primary. So, that's that. But I want to be careful, because we don't rebuke or reject because we just don't like somebody. I know that that's a temptation, and the church in a lot of ways can turn into a social club really quick. That should not happen. should absolutely not happen. It should be a matter of doctrine, a matter of understanding God's word and the salvation that we have in Jesus. So we rebuke with the intent of restoration. Now, some people might call rejecting someone um, unloving or unkind or hateful, fill in the blank, any way you want, because at some point, the Bible is very clear, you tell somebody that they're not a part of you. Like, it, it's very clear. So, is that unkind, or is that unloving? Well, no, I don't think that that's really the church being mean. I think, I, I would prefer to say that's just the church being biblical. Like, that's clearly what it teaches. And I don't think it has to be the church being mean, because Paul even tells Titus here, he says that such a person is self-condemned. It's not the church saying you're not a part of us. It's the person saying I'm not a part of the church. They're condemning themselves saying, no, I'm not willing to submit myself to the authority of the church or the authority of the elders in the church. I'm not willing to submit myself to the authority of God. Like they're saying I'm, I'm already not a part of you based off of their continued divisiveness. And for that reason, Paul says they are self-condemned. They have decided for themselves. It's not the body deciding to cast somebody out. It's a person deciding they don't want to be a part of the body. And I think that that's an important distinction to make. So, how do we respond to those people within the body who don't live according to the gospel message? Well, we avoid the silly fights and we reject repeat offenders. So, that's sermon number one. What do we do with it? Well, I hope it's pretty clear. Avoid silly fights and we reject repeat offenders. It's not terribly difficult, right? And I know, again, I know you all know how to do it, so... That brings us to the conclusion of this letter where Paul ties it all together. Like this, the entirety of this letter, he starts wrapping it up and he ties it all together and he says his farewell and he concludes this letter. So as we do, I want to show you three things that we do as a result of this letter and the gospel message. Three things that we should all do as a result of this letter and the gospel message. First, and this may seem pretty simple, but we gather together, right? Despite the fact, despite the fact that we are all broken people. Despite the fact that we're all broken people, we still gather together. Verse 12, Paul, Paul writes to Titus. He says, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me in Nicopolis because I've decided to spend the winter there. Paul wants to be around other believers. Paul wants to spend time with his brothers. Isn't that a crazy thing? Some of you are like, man, whenever it starts snowing, I'm going to use that as the first excuse to say, no, nah, I'm not getting together with brothers and sisters. Uh-uh. I'm not being critical of those who have a hard time getting out in bad weather. Don't hear that. But if that's just an easy excuse because you don't want to see your brothers and sisters in Christ, it's not a good one. Paul here is longing to be together. And the truth is, you are never going to reach the maturity that God has called you to if you try to do it on your own. You just won't. God has blessed us by giving us brothers and sisters in Christ. Like, you all are a blessing to me. And you should be a blessing to one another. It's good news that I don't have to try to figure it all out on my own. Instead, I can get together with brothers and sisters, and they can encourage me, and hopefully, Lord willing, I can encourage them. 
I hope that we, we see that this is really a gift from God. Y'all ever seen the movie Ice Age? Okay, so some of you, I've got your attention now. Like, we start talking little kids' movies, and I'm on board. Yes. So this movie Ice Age, it, it, my kids, are, they've, been, they've been watching it a lot lately, and, and I didn't realize that it was, uh, um, that, that it had some underlying theological tones to it. <laughs> That's a joke. I don't really think it does, but you can pull something out of there if you want, so I'm going to try really hard today. Um, so there's this scene. There's this scene in this movie where um, Manny, the mammoth, okay, the, the, the woolly mammoth, he's here, and he's kind of been a loner the whole time, right? And he doesn't want anything to do with anybody else. He just wants to, I'm just going to migrate all by myself. Like, y'all leave me alone. He's trying to do his own thing. And then he runs into this annoying sloth named Sid, right? Everybody loves Sid the sloth. And I was going to do the lispy thing, but I'm not going to do it right now. Um, and then there's, there's Manny, or not Manny, there's Diego, right? The saber-toothed cat, all right, who's kind of this tough guy who's just trying to be a part of, of, of his pack and do his part with, with his pack. No, not with Manny, not with Sid. He just wants to do his own thing. But there's this scene where Manny saves Diego. Like Diego's about to fall off into some lava and Manny saves him. And, and, and Diego looks at him and says, why in the world did you do that? Like, why did you save me? And I love this. Manny says, because that's what you do in a herd. That's what you do in a herd. Like you look out for one another. You help one another. You save one another whenever you see that they're about to fall into some boiling hot lava. Right? You save that person. You look out for one another. And see, I love that picture where that's, that's kind of the church. Y'all, they, we get together and we're not just here to be a social club. We're here because we should be looking out for one another. We should be encouraging one another. Whenever you see a brother or sister walking away, go get them. Like, don't just watch them walk away and fall off and wind up separated from the church. Go get them. Like, that's part, of being in a, that's part of being in a herd. You look out for one another. And maybe my favorite part of that whole thing is at the very end of that, like, he saves him. He says, that's what you do in a herd. And then Sid, the sloth, who's the annoying sloth, he looks and he says, um, I don't know about you guys, but we might be the weirdest herd I've ever seen. Like, y'all, we might be the weirdest looking herd the world has ever seen. And we should be. We should be crazy diverse. We should look like we have all kinds of different backgrounds. And see, a lot of times what we have is we got, well, we got people over here who like doing this stuff, so we're going to rally around that. Or we start saying, how do we, and this is not necessarily a bad thing, understand that, but sometimes we're like, well, we want to bring in more young people, and we focus so heavily on, like, we just want to be, like, like just, just these people and lump them together so that they're their herd, there's a herd over here, there's a herd over here. No, we should be like the weirdest looking herd in the world because we got people from all over the place being lumped together, pushed together because we have one thing in common and that is Jesus. Y'all, that's something we should get excited about and we need to desire long to gather together. Y'all, it got hot in here. That's what we do in a herd. That's what we do in a family. We look out for one another. We build one another up. And I don't care if we look weird. You know what? I hope we look weird. I hope the world looks at us and say, what in the world is going on at Christian Fellowship Church? And we can be like, you know what? That's what you do in a herd. We love our brothers and sisters, and we want to gather together with them, not just on Sunday morning. Now, I'm glad you all are here. And for those who are watching online, I hope you're here next week. Like, I want to see your faces. I love getting together on Sunday mornings. But... We should long to be together. Paul's not just talking like, come for the winter and we'll see you once a week for an hour. 
He's like, come spend time with me. Be in my home with me. I want to know you. Like, I want to share with you. We should long to be together. So I hope we want to be together. Second thing we do as a result is we support mission. We, we support mission. Verse 13, he says, Diligently helps Dennis the lawyer and Apollos on their journey so that they will lack nothing. The truth is, we know very little about Zenus the lawyer. All we know is that he was an expert in legal matters. That's what the word lawyer means. We don't know much else about him. Don't need to know much else about him. We know a little more about Apollos, and I actually love this. Um, So I've been telling, especially guys, like, lead your families in worship in your home. Lead your families in worship. I've urged you. Like, I've said it multiple times over the last few months. Like, I want you to have a time of family worship in your home. I want that for you. Because I know what it's done in my family. So, uh, what we've been doing at my house is we've been reading through the book of Acts. Every night before kids go to bed, like that's good bedtime reading, right? Like, you have faith in Jesus, there's a good chance you're going to die. Um, <laughs> now go to sleep. Um, we've, been, we've been reading through the book of Acts together. And, and I, I came across Apollos in Acts chapter 18. And Apollos is described as being full of the Spirit, that he was a, he was a powerful speaker. He was teaching, teaching people about Jesus. And maybe my favorite part is verse 28 of Acts chapter 18, where he says, vigorously ref, He vigorously refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating through the Scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. In other words, what we just found is Paul's telling him, Send this guy who's been refuting the Jews all over the place, send him out. Like, send him on. Send him out so that he can take on those people who are missing the point. Like, they may know the Old Testament, but what, Paul, what, what Apollos was doing is he was showing them through their scriptures, Jesus is the Messiah. So send him out. And this is something that our eldership here at Christian Fellowship has been discussing for the last, well, really for the last month or so, especially maybe a little bit longer than that. But specifically, how can we be more effective? How can we be more strategic in mission? How can we do a better job of sending our folks out so that we see the gospel being taken to people around us? And we have some people in our congregation who have been gracious enough to work with us on that. And I'm very thankful for that. Because we need to, while, yes, we need to gather together and we need to be looking inward to how we can encourage one another, the mission of God is outward and we need to be pushing one another out to go and take the gospel where it hasn't gone before. So, he touches on both of those. He says, I want you to come to me, but then send them out so that we can see the gospel go where it hasn't gone before. So as a result of this letter and as a result of the gospel living in us, we gather together, we support mission both locally and globally. And third, as a result, we do good works. We do good works. Verses 14 and 15 here to the end, and I hope you've picked up on this theme for the last few weeks, but it says, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works for pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. We need to continue to show good works that come from an overflow of God's grace in our lives. We need to insist on those. And it literally says again, it says devote. That that word means to rule over. Rule over your life in such a way that it just devote. Like you you are just ruling with good works. Like it's just emanating from you. Let God's grace rule over your life in that way. Because as the spirit lives and moves in us, it will necessarily show to the world around us. The last thing, and then I'll, I'll stop. Notice that Paul says, let the people learn to devote themselves to good works. Sometimes we think good works are just going to like happen naturally. Like It's just, it, they're easy, so yeah, it's no big deal. Uh, it's not natural. If you're just hoping that all of a sudden, like, okay, I'm going to start doing good works just because, you know, that's what naturally happens. That's not the case. He says that that needs to be learned. This is something that is learned. 
So, even though it's not natural, we need to devote ourselves to good works. And it will take time, and it will take energy, and it will take effort as we strive in the Spirit to do good works. But we certainly don't want to be unfruitful. So we gather together, we support mission, we do good works. Basically, we do what the theme of this letter is. Like, we live the mature Christian life. That's what we do as a result of this letter. So, I want to urge you, not only, not only what we talked about in sermon number one, which is um, avoiding, avoiding the foolish debates and, uh, and then, uh, you know, taking on those important matters, rejecting the person whenever they continue to be divisive. Not only do we need to do that, but we need to gather together, support missions, and do good works. Let me pray for you all. Father, God, I come to you today, and I just, I thank you for the gospel message for the good news that we have a Savior who loved us and gave himself for us, despite the fact that we had no hope on our own. So, Lord, we thank you today. We praise you today. We give you all the glory, all the honor, all the credit for all of the work that's been done for our salvation, knowing that our best works are nothing but filthy rags before you. So, Lord, we praise you today for loving us. Lord, I want to pray that we would truly do what your word teaches us to do, Lord, that we would long for what you desire for us, that we would want to be people who follow after you. God, so let us be devoted to good works. Let us be people who want to support mission, like want to see the gospel sent out. Father, and let us, let us love one another. Something that may seem so simple, God, is this, this idea of loving one another, but I, I guess in my own life, Lord, I've got to confess that it's one of the hardest things I've ever done. So Lord, help us. We pray that you would come and that you would work in us. Um, Father, I know that if, if it's not for your spirit in me, then I, I can't. So, Lord, I pray that you would accomplish that work, that you would let us love one another, that you would let us love those whom you love and, and take the gospel to those people you want to see saved, which we know that you desire to see all saved, all come to a knowledge of who you are. So, Father, help us to take the gospel to those around us. Father, I thank you for this word. I thank you for this time together. And I just pray that you would make it effective. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.